0: This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The October issue of the Annals contains the second installment in a four-part 2014 core curriculum series. Part two uh, will be done by myself and Dr. Jason Poston and covers recent advances in adult critical care medicine, today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Poston, who edited the core component uh, of the curriculum on critical care. Dr. Poston is assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and a career medical educator with a special interest in physical and neurologic function of patients who have survived critical illness. We welcome. Dr. Poston. So uh, we'll start, Jason. Uh, drawing on some of the uh, topics that you covered in the uh, core curriculum, I uh, wondered if we could start with uh, ways to imp- uh, to improve outcome in ARDS. Uh, what would you consider a core? Where are we going uh, with this uh, take it from there.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Fine, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to um, share some of the, the things that I learned and that I think we are trying to uh, distill and, and provide to ATS members and, and readers of the annals of the ATS um, in a usable format. Um, and I think that's a great question to, to start off with, how do we improve outcomes in ARDS? I think the simple answer is to look at the data that most of us are familiar with and apply it at the bedside. And so, whether it's uh, Lung Protective Strategies, uh, which has now been published for um, going on 15 years, uh, Reducing Lung Volume uh, with the, the FACT trial in 2006, and then more recently, um, several strategies that I think people have begun to adopt in severe ARDS, uh, which people had considered as salvage therapy, um, but in 2010 with neuromuscular blockade in the article by Papasian and the Proseva trial about proning uh, prone positioning, which was published in 2013, to consider using those modalities, both of which uh, demonstrated improved outcomes. Um, I think it's also important to recognize, and as we we're putting the core together, you know, experts in this area uh, continue to make the point that, you know, if if it works uh, with the ventilator and someone who has our ARDS. Uh, We certainly know that the ventilator can cause ARDS, and so using um, certainly the lung protective strategy uh, with low tidal volumes is probably the right way to go in patients who don't currently have ARDS but are ventilated for other reasons just to protect them from the ventilator. So I think that body of literature is uh, robust, and I think in a lot of ways um, people know what they're supposed to do Um, And one of the things that uh, we're trying to do with the core curriculum, and with some of the other initiatives, I think, through the the ATS, is to sort of bridge that gap between knowing and doing. And while six cc's per kilo of ideal body weight sort of rolls off people's tongues, we also know that sometimes that's difficult to, to implement. And so the ATS, through many activities such as the core, hope to provide members with opportunities to keep abreast of knowledge, as is described in the ATS core curriculum uh, manuscript, um, but also to think about how we implement um, these uh, modalities of care so that we can provide high-quality care as guided by our best clinical science. And then finally, I think it's difficult to talk about ARDS. It's such a prototypical critical care disease without talking about um, the ARDS story and how that's focused us on other aspects of critical care and other things that are really important for meaningful recoveries. And so while improvement in oxygenation is often the short-term goal, um, particularly in the Canadian um, Trials Group and some of Margaret Heridge's work has really focused us starting with an ARDS population, but now it has uh, grown and I think become an area of focus for all critical care patients that while we rightfully uh, direct a lot of our attention to the lungs in the management of these patients, um, it's more than ventilator strategy, it's more than neuromuscular blockers or proning, um, but that we need to share that attention on the lungs with other parts um, of the body and other organ systems, particularly the brain and the muscles, which oftentimes, as our survivorship improves, um, is the residual effect and the long-term morbidity. That is associated with critical illness, um, and again, ARDS is the prototype for this. But I think that focus on ARDS has also taken us in other directions within critical care, clinical outcomes research, and uh, quality of care. And I think those are increasingly important as we think about our ARDS patients. Well,
0: that that was um, wonderful, and I think uh, uh, the. Uh, those listening can follow up uh, with uh, the uh, article in the annals. Um, So uh, talking about other aspects of care of ARDS uh, patients, uh, one of the major advances in uh, process of care has been uh, more rapid discontinuation of ventilation. So what, what do you think we have uh, as uh, uh, the basis for uh, prompt discontinuation of mechanical ventilation, what should uh, uh, intensivists uh, focus
1: on? So, oftentimes, uh, whenever one of my patients in the ICU gets intubated, I think to myself, "That's the worst thing that could happen to that patient," because we know with mechanical ventilation um, from the from the patient standpoint um, the clock is ticking to a ventilator um, adverse event Uh, there's non-ventilator associated morbidity their length of stay and the long-term sequelae of critical illness um, you know starts to accumulate as soon as the the endotracheal tube goes in so as you've you've pointed out uh, we have a focus on prompt discontinuation of mechanical ventilation I think as um, I discussed with the care of ARDS, where we um, know what we're supposed to be doing but making sure that it happens every day um, is, the, is the key um, component here and that we need to operationalize the science behind prompt discontinu- discontinuation of ventilation into what we do every day. And so uh, the literature that supports um, a low target for uh, sedatives for patients who are on mechanical ventilation. Um, and the results that have demonstrated that with a low target um, of sedation or with a daily interruption of sedation, that patients uh, come off the ventilator faster uh, because they're more able to demonstrate that they can come off the ventilator. I think we need to start with the the sedation. Um, I think we need to pair that sedation with spontaneous breathing trials, uh, which tell us patients' readiness to come off the ventilator. Um, obviously, there are a lot of details that go into that decision on a daily basis, um, but I think that our approach needs to be um, favoring extubation in everyone every day. And I don't uh, say that flippantly as if I expect that to happen, but if that's our default and we we um, come to the bedside every day and say, I'm going to make the patient prove to me that they need the ventilator um, rather than prove to me that they don't need the ventilator. I think that that will um, put us in an aggressive stance to uh, proceed with prompt discontinuation of mechanical ventilation based on uh, some of the um, spontaneous breathing trial um, data that we have seen. So we want an aggressive approach. Obviously, we need to balance that against being reckless, and um, certainly... I'm not advocating that uh, we, we proceed to that. But we want an aggressive stance. And I think most experts would say that if 10 to 15 percent of your extubations are failures and the patient needs to be re-intubated, um, that that is an acceptable cost uh, for the prompt uh, liberation from mechanical ventilation that you afford uh, the remainder of your patients.
0: Uh, I- I'm going to just uh, throw out uh, an opinion question you think there's a role for non-invasive ventilation as a bridge from uh full mechanical ventilation to uh spontaneous uh of ventilation uh, has, yeah you know it's been literature over the years but uh, not not always employed
1: yeah it certainly um is, is something i think people are are very interested in and clearly for certain diagnoses Non-invasive ventilation can be used to avoid intubation. In other settings, it has been uh, used and even proven, particularly in um, uh, in ventilatory failure from acute and chronic respiratory failure. Um, it's been utilized um, to help liberate people. Um, there have been uh, mixed results with the studies from those trials. From an opinion standpoint, um, I think I often will look at uh, a patient, and because I I'm um, a believer in the benefits of removing the endotracheal tube and the um, sedation and the analgesia that's required and the potential morbidity from those things. I tend to be an, um, someone who takes an aggressive stance. And if I think that um, I can liberate a patient from the ventilator um, a day earlier uh, by using non-invasive ventilation and that um, I clearly am not putting a patient in harm's way, um, so I know that patient's a good non-invasive candidate. That their mental status, um, that their airway protection, that their ability to, um, to be an active participant in their care um, is present. Um, I certainly would um, uh, seriously consider utilizing that modality um, to try and move their their extubation, their liberation um, ahead by a day or two days. Um, accepting that I might have to bridge them with non invasive ventilation for some portion of that time, so uh, while the the data is not entirely clear, uh, my own personal practice um, you know would favor the utilization of non invasive ventilation in certain circumstances to liberate folks from the ventilator a little bit earlier.
0: Uh, so uh, now we're going to pivot uh, just a, a a bit to uh, monitoring. And there, there had been you know, some some literature this this year uh, uh, proposing uh, that the the use of uh, natriuretic peptide monitoring might allow for uh, better uh, fluid volume control and perhaps earlier liberation from mechanical ventilation. Uh, you when know, and, and in my own career I've seen the pulmonary artery catheter uh move from a novelty kind of niche uh uh monitoring device to uh, to pretty much universal application to uh gradual gradually back to uh a specific uh circumstances of use. Is the uh, pulmonary uh, artery catheter, does it have a role uh, in today's uh, critical care unit? Uh, Has echo uh, cardiography, uh, ultrasound replace it? Are there biomarkers that uh, uh, will eventually replace both of them?
1: So uh, I think a a great question and uh, one of the great parts about the um, adult critical care curriculum Uh, this year was that um, as it sort of unfolded and played out in front of our eyes, um, Gregory Schmidt, um, who gave a talk about uh, ICU monitoring, uh, sort of described the ups and downs of the PA catheter and uh, cautioned us all about the limitations of that particular modality and its lack of utility when it was studied, particularly in medical ICU patients. And, um, you know, several minutes later, um, Dr. Akshay Desai, who uh, is a heart failure specialist, talked about the utility of the PA catheter in in his patients. And so I think that that uh, longstanding debate continues to uh, rage on and uh, continues to be an area of um, tremendous interest for a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, above and beyond that, the the history of the PA catheter, um, and the, the sort of disagreement about its utility provides us with quite a few lessons about the newer technologies. You mentioned echocardiography, um, but we've come to use pulse pressure variation, uh, vena cable diameter as assessed by ultrasound, um, ultrasound-assessed arterial flow, bioimpedance, um, uh, you know, whether or not we're using biomarkers, all of these intended to, to help us with fluid management, with resuscitation, and with manage of you know, circulatory disease. I think that the PA catheter story, and this was, the I think, the emerging theme from, from this core curriculum, uh, gives us caution about over-reliance on any particular monitoring modality, specifically um, looking at them in isolation, and that it really is the aggregate of all of these things because there are limitations. And um, the PA catheter story, as it unfolded, Um, I think it's similar to a lot of these other newer modalities. There's a ton of potential. um, There's a lot of data that comes out of it. um, But I think that what people have have agreed on, and and I think the approach that the folks have taken, is you want to use this not just to generate data, but to answer a specific and focused question. That there are limitations in many of these modalities to data acquisition. And there can be a lot of noise in this data, and you need to recognize when there's noise in this data that there are limitations in the data interpretation, and certainly the PA catheter story bore that out. And then ultimately, I think a point that um, all of our our participants in this discussion as it unfolded uh, made was um, data can be very interesting, but how is it going to change your patient management? And I think if we're going to incorporate some of these uh, modalities, we need to make sure that we're titrating it to a hard endpoint and and demonstrating um, those endpoints. And so uh, while a lot of these modalities and echocardiography, focused cardiac um, echocardiography in the ICU, certainly has um, a role, and I think there's an emerging body of evidence to, to demonstrate that, I think it would benefit all of us and ultimately um, benefit our patients um, who are, you know, who are the beneficiaries or uh, potentially um, harmed by our misuse of these technologies that we proceed through um, our investigation and our integration of these modalities in the ICU uh, with a good bit of caution and a good bit of skepticism, um, keeping an eye on uh, not only the potential and the ability to generate lots of data, um, but a healthy skepticism about uh, the the quality of that data, uh, the potential limitations of that data so that we're using it appropriately and wisely um, and not getting a, a false sense um, of uh, precision from these particular data uh, monitoring devices
0: well i think uh, i i think you've uh, summarized that extraordinarily well and i think these uh, areas will evolve uh, my feeling has always been that if you can do something non invasively uh it's uh, much better than uh, 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 sticking anything into a patient. So um, I think we can uh, just move on to a couple of uh, topics that uh, are interesting to me. Uh, It was only, I would say, within the last few years that uh, COPD and asthma were recognized uh, as potentially overlapping. I mean, I, you know, I think we all kind of knew it, but not that many people uh, would say it. So I know you said it in uh, the core curriculum. I wondered if uh, you had any comments about uh,
1: this uh, COPD asthma uh, phenotype group. Yeah, I think that increasingly we recognize that and are better able to characterize the, the Venn diagram. Uh, that shows the overlap between the classic COPD phenotype and the classic asthma phenotype um, in the same patient, where you have a decreased FEV1 to FEC ratio um, and a bronchodilator response, but perhaps not a complete bronchodilator response. I think we're also recognizing implications for care in these patients. And so this group, if you follow them, uh, appear to exacerbate more frequently than a classic COPD patient might. And so there's some evidence and certainly some people would suggest that, you know, rather than reaching for a long acting anticholinergic, which I think people often would uh, in a COPD patient, the patients that have this bronchodilator response um, may benefit from a treatment that looks more like asthma treatment, and specifically that an inhaled corticosteroid uh, earlier in the pecking order of their medication um, may be the right thing for them.
0: Well, this uh, I, I I think the one one of the questions that is always coming up is how common in the is this group and there's always an argument about how uh, frequently COPD and asthma do overlap. I I kind of think it's quite frequently, but. Uh, uh, I, I'm glad that this is uh, you know finally recognized as uh, a, a group that needs uh, some more uh, specific attention finally Jason uh, who who wouldn't be interested in uh, the effects of uh, marijuana uh, I think it's uh, certainly being uh, uh, more Commonly in the news, and uh, one of the areas I think that is not uh, discussed is the uh, potential uh, toxicity. So uh, I thought the uh, the inclusion of the cannabinoid toxidrome uh, was, a, was a very good one in the uh, core curriculum. So I wondered if you could make a couple of comments about uh, this problem.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Zimmerman, who... Um, gave the presentation and, and wrote the toxidrome uh, section. Did a really did a really wonderful job. It'll be interesting to see if this particular toxidrome, uh, which tends to be associated with synthetic compounds, um, synthetic cannabinoids, um, so often called K2 or spice or spice products, um, you know, with um, in many uh, jurisdictions within the United States. Uh, with the traditional um, cannabis being legal, whether or not these products will fall out of f- favor. Um, this particular toxidrome, as these products um, have, have come online over the last several years, um, I think that the um, typical effects of um, marijuana sort of in its uh, smoked and uh, more natural form um, are a little bit different from this synthetic canna- cannabinoid product or this cannabinoid toxidrome, which looks more like a sympathomimetic toxidrome that you might expect uh, from a patient who has abused pseudoephedrine or cocaine. And so these patients um, will present oftentimes with agitation or psychosis. They can have hemodynamic instability with tachycardia, um, arrhythmias. There have been other vascular events, including Uh, strokes and myocardial infarction associated. Um, And there's a relatively, um, speaking, higher rate of um, progression to seizures, rhabdomyolysis, and renal failure. Um, And so this can be um, a difficult to recognize uh, toxidrome because uh, someone may say that they were on um, a a cannabis or a, a synthetic cannabis product. Um, and you might not uh, be able to put the pieces together, but it looks more like a sympathomimetic toxidrome that I think people are more familiar with. Um, And the management for this, uh, uh, let me also say, it can be somewhat difficult because oftentimes these particular substances aren't picked up by a standard um, uh, drug screening test that that might pick up marijuana and might pick up, you know, the other traditional sympathomimetics such as cocaine. Um, so I think a, a healthy knowledge and a healthy index of suspicion uh, might help uh, the provider sort of nail down that this is the toxidrome that they're dealing with. Um, the treatment for um, patients who present with this is similar to to patients who have um, the sympathomimetic toxidrome It's sort of a subgroup, which would be benzodiazepines to manage the agitation psychosis and the potential for um, seizure uh, activity, Uh, supportive care to be provided, uh, volume resuscitation, um, to try and uh, prevent some of the organ failures that may be associated with with seizures or with some of the other um, agitation psychosis that goes with this particular toxidrome. But I think the other important point is um, with these synthetic um, preparations, similar to um, narcotic toxidromes, which um, the, the sort of drugs of abuse, the traditional um, heroin uh, toxidrome is now much less common than a narcotic toxidrome associated with prescription um, narcotic medications or opioid medications. And uh, both in the narcotic toxidrome as well as in this particular version of the sympathomimetic toxidrome, um, it may last a lot longer. And so um, cocaine and heroin um, might uh, be measured on in hours in terms of their effect, uh, whereas this uh, cannabinoid um, toxidrome and some of the, the narcotic toxidromes that are being seen associated with long-acting prescription opioids uh, may last for days. And so the duration of support that you need to provide uh, before these particular substances are cleared and the toxidrome resolves um, may be a bit longer, and I think that's just going to take uh, some adjustment to our uh, standard expectations for how long these Toxidromes take to clear.
0: I think we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, cannabinoid uh, Toxidrome, and I think we're going, going to have to use some of these points and improve our uh, uh, recognition. Uh, so. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Poston for giving us his time and uh, doing such a wonderful job on uh, the ATS core critical care uh, curriculum. And uh, once again, this is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society.